Well, happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship on this cold, cold Sunday morning. Glad that you all made it out. It's good to be together before the Lord Jesus. We have come to the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Some of you are thinking, oh no, and others are going, yes, finally. We're going to be covering the final five verses this morning. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28. And in this benediction, this farewell of Paul, he is revisiting some of the same themes that he's brought up in the letter. Primarily, he wants to encourage the Thessalonians about their salvation in Christ and exhort them unto holiness. He wants them to know that when the Lord comes round, when Christ returns, God will have them ready, holy and blameless before him. Main idea is this this morning. He who calls you is faithful. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God will get the job done. He finishes what he starts. Perhaps if you want it in a familiar song lyric, we could say the main idea is grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. We're going to work through uh, the section under three headings, and if you want to remember it, you can say, bah, sort of like a sheep, it's B-A-A, so, so benediction, that'll be a shorter section, assurance, that will be most of our time, and then action, things that Paul wants us to do in light of what God has done. So bah, benediction, assurance, action for those of you who love outlines. Well, with that set up, would you please stand up in honor of reading God's holy and perfect word together? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify, that's make holy, you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. May he carve its eternal truths on our hearts. And let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have indeed spoken to us in your word. We pray that you would speak to us through it now. That you would focus our minds and our hearts and our attention on you that your Holy Spirit would illumine the, the eyes of our hearts, that we might not just hear, but we would understand and be changed by you. Help us to get to know you more through your word and to love you more deeply. You are so good. You are the God of peace. You have redeemed us, and you have promised to soon crush Satan underneath our feet once and for all. For that we give you praise 
and honor and glory as we have a foretaste of eternity in our gathering together this morning. Lord, be with us now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul gives a benediction here, and it's not the first time that he's given a benediction in our book. You'll remember at the transition point between chapter 3 and chapter 4, at the end of chapter 3, Paul gives to us a first benediction, and it's pretty similar to the one we just read. I'll read it to you, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And so we can see those themes. Paul wants them to be holy and blameless at the return of Christ. When Jesus comes back, he wants the Thessalonians to be ready. And so he offers a benediction. And I have been using the word benediction. And if I were a, a wagering man, you know, I'm, I'm not a betting man, I'm not, not like the ball club. They were telling me they wanted to do a fundraiser called Risk All for the Nations and have a casino night next door. I don't know. I have to talk to somebody about it. But if I were a betting man, I would bet that most of y'all don't know what the word benediction means. Does anybody know the definition of benediction? Somebody want to be brave? What was that? That's pretty good. I don't know where it came from. That's good. Yeah, it's Latin for a good word. It simply means a blessing. And one of the interesting things about these blessings, these benedictions, these good words that Paul speaks to the Thessalonians and really uh, to all the churches at the end of his letters is that they are they're part prayer, sort of like a wish. You'll often hear commentators call these wish statements. They're part prayer and part promise. Paul is is asking God to do something, and he's also declaring that God will indeed do it. And so he's ending his letter to the Thessalonians by giving them both a prayer and a promise. He's saying, the God of peace will give you peace and sanctify you completely. He's going to keep you blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will do it. He who calls you is faithful. He's putting some wind beneath their wings as they finish up this letter. It's one of the reasons that we finish our services with a benediction. We want to send you out with a declaration of God's promises to you. A reminder that God's grace is with you as you go out from this place. That Jesus Christ is going with his church He's always right by your side. Paul speaks a benediction to the Thessalonians, and he begins his benediction by putting our eyes on the God of peace so that he might give us assurance about the peace that God has called us to. Look with me at verse 23 again. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That triparet division, spirit, soul, body, it's just Paul's way of saying all of you, right? Total sanctification is what he's talking about there. He, he's saying there isn't one part of you that will be left out of this. It's sort of like when Jesus tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's not saying, hey, get all these individual parts of yourself to agree. He's saying, love God with your whole self. And Paul here is saying, God is going to sanctify all of you. This is really important. What what Paul is, is doing here is he is grounding the hope of the Thessalonians in the call of God. He's saying God has called you to himself and he still calls you. The word calls in verse 24 is a participle. It's active, showing us that God is still doing the calling. God is going to be with the Thessalonians unto the very end. He calls to Christ and he keeps calling them to holiness and he, he will make them complete. There is a already and a not yet to the Christian life. So there's a sense in which we say oftentimes you're saved, but there's really sort of, you can break that apart into three different sections, right? You are saved, you are being saved, you will be saved, right? You're already saved, but you're not yet all the way saved. Or, or we're free from sin's power, we're free from sin's penalty already, but we are not yet free from sin's presence. Or uh, we have been given eternal resurrection life in the Lord Jesus Christ already, but we have not yet been raised up to eternal life. Another one, the kingdom of God has come with the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet it is not yet consummated. We, we still await the return of Jesus. We still wait for the consummation of the kingdom. And so what I'm trying to help you think about is there is a sense in which our salvation is already and not yet or in process. Two words, we talked about them earlier in the book, will help us think this through. Justification and sanctification. You are already justified. You are being sanctified. And you will be fully and finally completely sanctified, completely holy at the day of Christ Jesus. Remember, justification is at the heart of the gospel. It means to be made right with God. Justification is a forensic and legal declaration about an individual. It is when God looks at an individual who has put their faith in Christ and on the basis of Jesus Christ's righteousness that's been imputed to them by faith, the judge says, not guilty. So that when the father is evaluating his children, he says, they are not guilty because they have been found righteous in Christ Jesus, my son. This is really incredible. Really is at the heart of the gospel. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, all of your evil doing is credited to his account. 
and all of his right doing is credited to your account. When we come to Jesus by faith, his death becomes our death, and his life becomes our life. We are united to him so that what is his is ours. He pays for our sins. We're pardoned. And we receive all of the blessings he has earned. We have the full favor of God. Be sort of like if you were to think of a great king or prince who had all the wealth in the world. And he married himself to a young peasant girl who had nothing, who had piled up debt, whose name was, was mud and shame because of a sordid past. And, and when that prince got married to that peasant, what happens is she becomes royalty. She becomes a princess. What's his becomes hers. He erases her debt. His name becomes her name. This is what happens in the gospel. We are united to Christ. His death becomes our death. We're forgiven of our sins. He dies for our sins. His life becomes our life. We enjoy all the favor and pleasure of God. His name becomes our name. We are called Christians. This is at the heart of the gospel. When we receive the grace of God with open hands by faith, we are being justified before God. We are being made right with God. Non-Christian, you can do that today. You can turn from your sins, put your faith in Jesus, acknowledge him as Lord, and be made right with God. You can have your sins forgiven and all the pleasure of God encourage you to do that, to talk to someone about it. Justification is God's solo work. We contribute nothing to our justification. We do not, cannot make ourselves right with God. Yet when we are justified, our status is, is totally changed. We become positionally righteous. So that it's not just as if I never sinned. It becomes just as if I never sinned and that I did everything Jesus has done. We, we are positionally righteous already. With me? We're already positionally righteous. But we are not yet totally righteous. We've been definitely sanctified, set apart as God's holy people. But we are not yet perfectly sanctified. We are in process. It's, it's called progressive sanctification. We're, we're growing in godliness. I mean, you know this from your own experience. When you turned from your sins, when, when God saved you, you did not immediately become perfect. At least I haven't met any of you yet that are perfect. But you did change. Things about you, things in your life started to change. 
because you were positionally made right with God. And out of that being made right with God, you began to progress in holiness. You were right positionally, and you are under construction practically. That's what sanctification is. If justification is the heart of salvation, uh, the root of salvation, uh, sanctification is the, the fruit of salvation. Justification is God's solo work, and sanctification is God-powered shared work. In justification, we receive, by faith, grace as pardon. We're forgiven our sins. In sanctification, by faith, we depend on God's grace as power unto obedience. Grace is pardon and it is power. And it operates in justification to, to make us right with God, to give us that legal standing. And in sanctification, it empowers our obedience to God. In justification, we are brought to life by grace through the Spirit. In sanctification, we are tasked with putting sin to death by the Spirit. With me? Sanctification is God making us holy in heart and conduct. It is growing in grace. It is becoming in practice what we have been declared in Christ, which is holy. And sanctification requires obedience. It requires effort. It requires that you try, that you work. Thus, the commands that are piled up and spilling out of your Bible those are there because God expects you to do them. We cannot, if we are to grow in godliness, just let go and let God. You will never, ever grow if that is your perspective. No, no, we, we can't let go and let God. We must instead follow the Apostle Paul, depending on God's grace, and work hard to obey the commands of God. We must press onward in faith, press on toward the upward call in Christ Jesus, that we might take hold of eternal life. Sanctification takes work. So, so to sum up, justification is God's solo work. You don't contribute anything to that, but your sin. Sanctification is, God, is shared work that's powered by God. And the two must be distinguished neatly, lest we start to take credit for our own salvation. Salvation is the work of God beginning to end. But at the same time, though we keep them distinguished, we must never separate them. They are root and fruit. They belong together. They're married they sleep in the same bed, they drive in the same car, they go to the same places. Where you find justification, you find sanctification. Where you find one, you find the other. They're, they're like peanut butter and jelly, you know, lamb and tuna fish. They go together. Where justification has happened, sanctification is ongoing and will be completed. This, you're going, why, why are we talking about this? Because this relationship, 
the relationship between justification and sanctification is where Paul is making his argument. The grounds that Paul uses to assure the Thessalonians that God is going to sanctify them completely is the call of God they received in being justified. God calls them. He called them to himself, and he's going to keep calling them. It's going to be completed. He's committed entirely to them. This is is important for us. Our perseverance in faithfulness is not dependent on us, but on the grace of God. God is not going to call you and then ghost you. He's not going to call you and commit to a Friday night dinner and then be too busy washing his hair to go out. God keeps his commitment. And those he calls to himself, he keeps calling. He sanctifies completely. He keeps faithful because he is faithful. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is really, if you have ever struggled with the question, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Am I really going to make it to heaven? Paul is giving you an answer here. He's putting balm on that wound. He's saying, he who calls you is faithful. Grace has got you this far, and grace will lead you home. Same thing he says in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He wants them to know God is trustworthy. That the God who called them to himself is also calling them to holiness. He's going to make sure that they get it. Remember 1 Thessalonians 1.4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And so how do the Thessalonians know that they are called, that they have been loved and chosen by God? Well, it's not because they're really pretty people. It's not because they're successful people. It's not because they're smart people. No, it's because of the love and choosing of God. God called out to them and called them to himself. And just as he initiated their salvation, he is going to complete their sanctification. He's going to get them to heaven. He's going to finish the good work that he started in them. And it's not because they chose God and they're really good people. It's because of God's great love. Do you understand this? You're not a Christian because of anything you have done. You are a Christian because of the great love with which the Father loves his people. 
apart from the grace of God, you are a rebel, rotting in sin, hating God, despising the reason for which you were made, which is the worship of God. Paul Paul couldn't be clearer in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You walked in sin. Following the course of this world, you belonged to the world. You followed its course. Following the prince of the power of the air, you followed Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were a son of disobedience. Among whom we all, that's all of us, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. Not children of God, children of wrath, because we were owed wrath for our sins, like the rest of mankind. We were dead, we hated God, we had earned nothing but His righteous wrath towards our sins. We had earned hell, see, we'd earned His wrath stretched out across eternity in hell. We were God's enemies. And what changed all of that, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you are a Christian, it is because of the great love with which God loved you. He loved you. He chose to rescue you from your sins. Dead people don't do anything. You were in rebellion against God, you were spiritually dead, and God loved you and brought you to life. He raised you up from the dead by the power of his word, by the gospel. And when your heart quickened, you believed. And you repented. This is the work of God. He saved you. That's what Paul's saying. He called you to himself. With his great love, he called you to himself, and he is going to complete what he started. You can take it to the bank. Paul is not telling the Thessalonians, well, you know, you professed your faith in Christ, you believed the word, and so now cross your fingers and hope that you you make it to heaven when you die. No, no, no. Paul is saying God finishes what he started. He who calls you is faithful. Non-Christian. If you have a desire to believe in Christ, do not extinguish that flicker of a flame. Feed it. Feed it. God is calling out to you. You have no desire for God apart from his grace. Come to him. 
Trust him. Jesus said in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You can be a whoever. Jesus Christ will not cast you out. Never. Come to him. And find rest for your soul. Find satisfaction. You were made to worship God. Come to him. He will never cast you out if you come to him. And that goes for whoever. Makes us think of John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you're wondering, am I called? Does God want to save me? Is his love on me? Do you want to believe? Believe. Repent and follow Jesus. That's the evidence that you're called. It was the evidence for the Thessalonians. We know that he loved you and chose you. Verse 5, chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. They know because they believed the word. Paul is just saying, look, God, the God who saved you, is the God who is still saving you. He's still at work in you. He will finish what he started. Friends, your your salvation was not an afterthought. God did not send Jesus to die on the cross for ethereal sins, just sins in general, and then hope, oh, maybe, maybe some really good person will be smart enough To turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. No, not one drop of Jesus' blood was wasted. Jesus' blood was shed for specific sinners. Jesus shed his blood to save whoever will repent of their sins and come to him. He died for those people. He died for his people. He gets what he paid for. God planned it this way. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And listen to this. Why did he choose us? So that, here's one of his goals, so that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Indeed, God has planned for your salvation. He planned to reconcile his people to himself. And what Paul is saying is if God the Father planned to save you, Thessalonians, 
If God the Father planned to save you, First Baptist Church, with the view of your holiness, so you could be holy and blameless before Him, if God the Son accomplished that salvation by spilling His precious blood for your sins, if God the Holy Spirit applied that salvation to you by causing you to be born again and uniting you to the Lord Jesus, if the Father planned it, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit applied it to you, if God did all of that, you can be guaranteed He is going to get you to heaven. You will persevere in the faith unto the very end. God is committed to those He's called to Himself. He saves and He sanctifies completely. He who calls you is faithful, church. He will surely do it. Grace has brought you safe thus far, and grace will lead you home. So be assured. Rest in the God of peace. You know, I know some of you are still going, but how... You know, you said, you know, I'm called because I believe the gospel, but how, how can I really be assured that God loves me and that Jesus Christ gave himself for me? Because you believe the gospel? But allow me to give you five sources of assurance. Five sources of assurance. One, you can know that you know Jesus because you believe and you want to believe his word and honor Christ as Lord, too. You can be assured of your faith because of God's promises. God has promised that the one who calls out to Christ in faith will be saved. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Three, the inward witness of the Holy Spirit Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. No one can say, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Four, the outward witness of the church. You can know that you are in Christ because of the outward witness of the church. Jesus has given the church authority to recognize and receive Christians. Your church membership testifies that you are in Christ. At your baptism, you are signifying that you have entered into covenant with Christ and his people. You've been united to Jesus by faith. His death is your death. The new life is your life. At the Lord's Supper, we renew our covenant to Christ and to one another. We, we are identifying ourselves as God's people. On the Lord's Day, we assemble together as members of the body of Christ. Sources of assurance. Believe the word. Believe God's promises. The inward witness of the Spirit. The outward witness of the church. And five, the fruit of obedience. Remember we said justification is the root and sanctification is the fruit. When you can look at your life and see the fruit of obedience to the word of God, you can know that, that God really is at work in you. You're like, I didn't, I didn't do that. 
I didn't cause myself to to grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God did that. He's at work in me. Fruit of obedience. There's three big ones in 1 John that he uses to assure his readers that they're in Christ. He says, you love Jesus. It's a fruit of obedience. You love Jesus. You love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You love the church, and you do not love the world. You, you, if you are a Christian, you will have fruits of faithfulness in your life. These are five good sources of assurance to remind yourself of any time you start doubting if God has called you to himself, dear Christian. Anytime you find yourself wondering, I wonder if I really will make it to heaven. You can look at these these sources of assurance, and you can look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 24, and you can say to yourself, you know what, I believe this. He who has called me is faithful. He will surely do it. And when you have that assurance that God is at work in you, it leads to action. Those who are called by God are committed to honoring him by faith in obedience. And Paul has sort of interrupted. You notice last week we just had this long string of commands. And then we have this interruption about with a benediction. He who calls you is faithful. He's going to sanctify you and keep you blameless until the end. And then you have some more commands to end the letter. Sort of saying he's giving us some more action points. Some more things to signify that we are in Christ. So, some more acts of obedience that we ought to commit ourselves to. And the first one is in verse 25. Brothers, pray for us. This is pretty simple to apply. A church is a praying people. We should be the kind of people who are committed to prayer because we depend on God. We recognize that for anything worthwhile to happen in us and among us, God must be at work. And so friends, pray. Pray together. Maybe, you know what a small change you can make in your life is come to church five minutes earlier. Find someone to pray with. Pray for the service, pray for the week, pray for something they're struggling with. That you could stay five minutes after service and pray. There are opportunities to pray all around us. You could could come on Sunday nights. I'll let you into the the first family prayer group. I don't know what it's actually called. There's a lot of family things and titles. The group, there's a group that prays before our Sunday night service. Come and pray with us. And pray after Sunday night service. Now, Wednesday nights, we have Bible studies, and we pray for the work of God in our church and in the world. We want to see God's kingdom grow like a mustard seed among all the nations. We want to see the nations be glad because they know the Lord Jesus as King. So pray. Pray together. It'll be an opportunity this week when when we get together for uh, the men's kickoff on Friday night. We will be gathered together. There will be some teaching. There will be some giving each other a hard time, I'm sure. And there will be prayer. Come to that. We bless. We want to be a people of prayer for God's work in Waynesboro and in the world. And just selfishly, brothers and sisters, pray for me. Pray for your pastors. 
You can do us no greater kindness than to pray. Paul moves on. Verse 26. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now this, this might be a little uncomfortable for us, um, but I did, I did talk to Lucas about playing uh, Sixpence None the Richer Kiss Me as the song of response today. And we're, we're going to obey this command and just greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, there were some chuckles, but here's the thing. We have to justify why we do not greet one another with a holy kiss. Because if the Bible says it, we should do it. So why don't we do it? Well, here's the answer. The principle here is that we would have a familial affection for one another. That we would be united together and at peace with one another. And this cultural expression of the kiss has sort of faded with time. But there was a time it was called the kiss of peace. It represented that a people were in unity together. At peace. Under the rule of the God of peace. Christians used to greet one another with the holy kiss before they came to the Lord's table. It would be an opportunity to confess sin and to reconcile with one another before feasting together with Christ. I'm not sure about this part. I think this may have been where the passing of the peace developed or like the modern church meet and greet. We don't do it here. You know, some churches will say, all right, get up, say hi to your neighbor, go and greet one another and there's, you know, hugs and fist bumps and all the rest. Underneath of that is this principle that we would love one another like family. That we would be united to one another in Christ. That we would be at peace with one another. So if we want to make application of this text, I think the easy way out is to say, we just do a handshake instead or a bear hug. And those are good things. But I, I, the text calls us deeper than that. Maybe we make application of it this way. If you are not at peace with a brother or sister in Christ, you need to this is a metaphor, kiss and make up. Kiss and make up. Commit to being at peace with one another, to delighting in being together. How, how dare we come together as the people of God and sit in the same room with our brothers and sisters who Jesus Christ shed his blood for and want to murder them in our hearts. How dare we rather hang on to our grudges than obey the God who calls us to be at peace with one another. We should be committed to delighting in one another, to greeting one another with true affection, true unity, and true peace. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss, with holy affection. Verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. You know, this would be really weird if I wrote you a letter and at the end of it I said, I put you under oath to read this to all the brothers and sisters. Paul knows that he is an apostle. Paul knows that he is writing the holy word of God. 
And so he calls the Thessalonians to commit to hearing God's word read. You know, later in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, one of the Timothys, four or five, you can find it later. He says, give yourselves to the public reading of scripture. That's what he's saying here. We want to be a people of the book, committed to hearing God's word. And I am I'm grateful that First Baptist Church is a people of the book. This is why we read the Bible so much during our worship gatherings. It's why we preach expositionally. We want to hear what God has said. We're committed to being a people of the book. Having given all his instruction, having given his benediction, having given his, given his commands, Paul signs off with verse 28. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And the letter really has come full circle. Same way he opened. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. You want to sound smart? You say here at the end we have an inverted chiasm. All that means is that Paul has bookended this letter with the same themes, grace and peace, and he flipped them. So I think what for in chapter 1, verse 1, it's grace to you and peace, and here it's may the God of peace give you peace, sanctify you completely, and keep you blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus, grace to you. See it? I think this shows us quite simply that the whole of the Christian life is grace from front to back from bottom to top. We are saved by grace through faith. We are sanctified by God's grace at work in us. It is by grace that we know him. It is by grace that we have been saved so that no one can boast. It is by God's grace that we are pardoned of our sins. It is by God's grace we are empowered for obedience unto holiness. It is by grace that we can be assured of our salvation. It is by God's grace that we are adopted into his family. It is by God's grace that we are called sons and daughters of the Most High. It is by grace that we know we will never be taken out of the Father's hands. It is by his grace that we have been loved. It is by grace that he has chosen us. It is by his grace that he has called us to himself. It is by grace he has raised us up unto the newness of life. It is by his grace he has given to us eternal life. It is by his grace he will raise us up unto resurrection life forever and ever. It is by grace that he will sanctify us completely. It is by his grace that the God of peace will sanctify you and keep you blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Grace has brought you safe thus far, and grace will bring you home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your grace is greater than all our sins. It's infinite, marvelous, and matchless. It comes to us contrary to our condition. It's not just that we don't deserve your grace and your love. It's that we were rebels against you. You have come to us and given us grace and loved us when we were unlovely. 
only because of your kindness, only because of your great benevolence. Lord, you have given us all. You have given us Christ. And so we offer you the praise and glory and honor of which you are worthy. And so we come to sing to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.